As is usual for a day here at Riverside, we have a lot on the agenda, not the least of which is that this is Worldwide Communion Sunday, or known as Peacemaking Sunday, and as we heard, followed by our great Ron's Rowdy Rub Barbecue made for us yesterday in his perfect grill by the perfect cook, Ron himself. Uh, you can't just, you just can't miss this. Uh, and you will see there all the missions that we do at Riverside. And I know we're supposed to be, not know what the left hand, uh, the right hand that know what the left hand is doing and so forth and be humble, but I've just got to say that I was talking to a, a mayoral candidate uh, in our uh, city uh, who, she did not win, you probably know who I'm talking about, and she ran me down at a big meeting and she said, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for Riverside Church. She said, you know, there are churches that do mission and then there's Riverside. And you'll get a sense of the mission that we do in this church, thanks to your generosity as well as your missional service uh, if you go to this uh, luncheon, and I hope you will do so. It's amazing. Also, if you'll notice our wonderful ha uh, chain of hands uh, symbolizing the unity of uh, God's creation, this was made uh, by Kathy Stark. Uh, our wonderful sort of artist in residence here at Riverside, who I unfortunately heard yesterday fell off her bike and broke her elbow. So um, apparently she's going to need surgery. Luckily, it's not her painting elbow, uh, but keep her in prayer uh, in the following days ahead. Uh, and uh, finally, I am uh, returning from uh, a vacation of uh, fishing in Baldhead the annual uh, fishing trip that I attend with a bunch of men. And of course, as you would expect, I will mention a story from that in a minute. <laughs> with all of that, I turn to our passages this morning in, uh, in the gospel according to Luke, as we've been studying Luke through these months. Starting in the first verse of the 17th chapter, may God illumine to us this word so that we might learn from it and grow. Jesus is teaching his disciples, of course, and he says to the disciples, occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better if, you, if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. He's not talking about children, but he's talking of those with young faith. Be on your guard, he says. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, correct him. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times a day and says, I'm sorry, you must forgive. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord replied, If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your servant who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, Come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to your servant, Finish preparing supper for me, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat and drink, and later you may eat and drink? 
Do you thank the servant, or excuse me, do you thank the servant for doing what was commanded and expected? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered and expected, will say, we're not worth much. Really, we're just servants. We have done only what we ought to have done. And this is the reading of the Word of God. So uh, first, let's get the fishing story out of the way. One of the best things about this annual fishing trip is that this group of unshaven, cigar-chewing, curmudgeonly old, uh, what do we call ourselves, Uh, old geezers, uh, from all walks of life, um, from lawyers to a prison guard, from high-tech specialists to a preacher. We're all over the place. This group of guys get together and we learn from each other about how to fish, the nuancing of, a nuance of fishing. But we also learn from each other about life. And we also learn from each other about fishing. Did I say that? And, and the way it's taught is that you find someone who looks like they know what they're doing and you stand beside them and let them tell you about all the different ways to do it right. How you cast the line and what kind of uh, bait you're supposed to use, how far out, what to do if you actually get a strike and so forth. And the cool thing about this is um, that there are young people who are part of this group as well, usually one or two sons who bring friends. And so the young people show up and they have no idea what they're doing except the sons who've done this before. This one group came this week from Colorado, three from uh, Denver uh, and two from Vail, and and they showed up, uh, had no idea how to fish, and so we just stood there waiting for them to figure this out. There were some poles, they picked them up, and they came over uh, watching us a little bit, and then they began to ask, now, what do you do here? Uh, How do you bait your hook? How do you throw the line out? We were using casting reels, which uh, uh, are line spun around a reel this way and when you cast it you're supposed to keep your thumb on it with some pressure so that it doesn't spool on you and turn into this really unfortunate bird's nest that takes forever to to untangle. Uh, The worst case scenario is you have to cut the line off and re-spool it which takes forever. That means you don't have a line in the water. So these guys are asking us how to do this and we're sort of patiently teaching them and we give them some 30 seconds or two minutes worth of however long they were willing to sit there with us, uh, lesson, they grab their rod and, and they go over about 10 yards and they pick it up and they heave it out as far as they can throw it because, of course, the farther it goes, the more manly you are. These are 30-year-old guys, of course. And so uh, they're preening like peacocks, having thrown this thing, chucked it for hundreds of seemingly yards, uh, looking around if everybody's watching Uh, with a big smile on their face, and then they look down at their reel, and it's everywhere. It looks like tad pie noodles all over their reel. It's birds nested, and so they start picking at it, thinking they know how to actually straighten it out, and after about five minutes, we're watching all this, they come moseying over, contrite, humble, they hold the rod out, and they say, I'm sorry, I messed up. Can you help me? And we do. We show them how to untangle the line. We get it set up again for them. We send them back out. And inevitably, more than once or twice or three times, they will continue to do it 
and come back with their tangled rod. And it was cool the way they came to us and asked for help, uh, the way they let us be mentors to them, uh, the, the way we, the old guys, didn't get anxious and try to teach them before they were ready, the way we were willing to wait for the moment when they were in trouble and to let them come to us and ask us how to get them uh, out of it. It was a great lesson in mentorship, I think, and in life. For with, faith, with fishing as in with faith, as in with forgiveness, we must be ready for the lesson that is before us, that comes to us when we are ready to receive it, and usually only the hard way. Then, with a whole lot of practice, which is always needed, practice before we figure it out, which is something we never completely do, we might just start getting the hang of it. The fact is that in order to learn these things of faith and fishing and forgiveness, we have to leave a whole lot of tangled up line in our wake. In this morning's passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and as was his custom, he has just cast out a big provocative line to see if there will be a bite. Everyone stumbles, he said, but woe to you if you make one of these little ones stumble. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were cast into the sea. Stunned, I'm sure, those disciples looked at him silently. Jesus knew that he'd hooked a few. And then the teaching moment came when Jesus said, Now be on guard. If another disciple sins, you must correct him, that is, rebuke him, and teach him otherwise. And if there is sorrow and repentance, then you must forgive. And if that same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times a day and apologizes, you must forgive. Now, Jesus used hyperbole all the time, hype we call it, to get his lesson across for the same reason uh, that we do. If we were to say it's raining cats and dogs and you grew up speaking English, and you, get, and you came to understand the figurative use of our language, you would know what that means. You'd get the point. It's raining heavily. Jesus uses that kind of hyperbole a lot. A lot. So at this point, there on the beach, huddled around him, uh, his disciples are sort of a little bit lost with this hyperbole about the millstone around your neck cast into the sea. What does that mean? And so they burst out with uh, pleading, Oh, Lord, Increase our faith. It's a legitimate request. For they're asking, we just want to be able to do this like you do it. Jesus knew that that was the ultimate teaching moment that he had waited for. And again, with hyperbole, he replies, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could command this mulberry bush back here to be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it would obey you. 
standing there with a giant spool of fishing line tangled up in their hands. They were silent, having no idea what to do next. And so Jesus, as usual, tells a parable. So he says, who among you would say to your servant who has just come in from plowing and working the field, sit down here and eat your supper? No, you wouldn't say that. He's your servant. Instead, you would say, prepare my supper and serve me. And then after I have been served, then you have the the freedom to sit down and eat for yourself. You will say to yourselves, we're just doing what was expected of us. And at that point, I get the sense that there were 12 disciples flapping around on the beach like landed flounder. Now, I know it sounds confusing and even harsh. They asked him to increase their faith, and he throws out this seemingly snide comment about them having less faith than a mustard seed. And then this parable about how important it is to do your chores before you get to sit down and eat. But the fact is that Jesus is teaching them life's great lessons about faith and forgiveness and fishing. They want more faith than like the one who repents seven times a day and like the one who forgives seven times a day and like the servant who works in the field and then has to come in and prepare the meal for his master. It takes perseverance and hard work. Faith does not come easily, nor does anything in life that is worth having. Maybe the key is asking ourselves what is worth having. What truly matters to us that's worth working this hard for? Then I suspect we might find the discipline to do the practice toward receiving it. I'm not talking about salvation here. That comes by grace. I'm talking about the fruits of the Spirit, which comes by work. I have a friend who thought uh, that he heard the greatest answer ever about what the meaning of life was about. He was being uh, looked at by a business, and the uh, owner of the business took him out to lunch and uh, began to ask him questions about his life and then asked the question by looking at the table and said, "Um, uh, tell me what your goals in life are. And my friend was taken aback by that, having never been asked in a job interview that question before, and so he hesitated for a moment, and then he came up with something that sounded magnanimous. And then he figured out, wait a minute, maybe it's it's this man who wants me to ask the question so he can tell me what his goals are. So he does. He said, so what are your goals? And and, and the, the owner of the business said, very simple, really, my life's goals. Uh, I want to turn seasons into verbs. My friend was confused by that. What does that mean? And so he asked, seasons into verbs. Help me understand what, what that means. And, and the owner of the business says, you know, summer in Acapulco, winter in Vale, fall in the mountains, turning seasons into verbs. Now, I suspect you were here looking for maybe a little bit different level of meaning in life with a few more calories 
than turning your seasons into verbs. That's why you're here. Maybe you're looking for more faith. What are your life's goals? What brings to you meaning? What's important? I hope our goals are a little more altruistic. And like the disciples, I hope that we are looking for more faith and joy, comfort, and peace on this Worldwide Communion Sunday. Maybe we're looking for a better marriage or someone to marry or how to become a better parent or grandparent or just a better human being. Maybe it's sobriety that we are seeking or generosity or joy, whatever it is. If it's a worthy, virtuous goal, then it takes a mentor a person who has been there and done it and learned the hard way, and it takes practice, practice, practice. Through this, we learn how to do it by messing up, by repenting, owning up to it, cutting the tangled line from our reel, respooling seven times a day if needed. We work in the field like servants in this parable. We come home, we prepare dinner, we serve those around us. It's what's expected, and then we will be able to sit down and enjoy the fruit of our work. So what is your goal? Let's take, for instance, the possibility that our goal is to be kinder human beings. This was the goal that we gave our daughters. I did not live up to it. I will be first to admit. They were always quick to remind me, Dad, your goal is to teach us to be kinder. You're not being kinder. And it felt like a millstone was hung around my neck. You may have seen George Saunders' graduation uh, speech to Syracuse University in 2013. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to read it to you because I can't tell it as well as he writes it. He said, find someone older than you and let them teach you. Now, one useful thing you can do with an old person, in addition to borrowing money from them or asking them to do one of their old-time dances so you can watch while laughing, is ask, looking back on your life, what do you regret? And they'll tell you. Sometimes, as you know, they'll tell you even if you haven't asked that question. Sometimes even when you've specifically requested they not tell you, they'll tell you. So what do I regret? Swimming in a river contaminated with monkey manure? No, even though I was sick for a year after. Not really. Here's something I do regret. In seventh grade, this new kid joined our class. And in the interest of confidentiality, I'll call her Ellen. Ellen was small and shy. She wore these blue cat's eye glasses that, at the time, only old ladies wore. When nervous, which was pretty much always, she had a habit of taking a strand of her hair into her mouth and chewing on it. So she came to our school and our neighborhood and was mostly ignored, occasionally teased. Your hair tastes good? That sort of thing. I could see this hurt her. I still remember the day she'd look after such an. Uh, I still remember the way she'd look after such an insult. Her eyes cast down, a little gut kicked, as if having just been reminded of her place in things. She was trying as much as possible to disappear. 
After a while, she had drifted away, hair strand still in her mouth. At home, I imagined after school, her mother would say, You know, how was your day today, sweetie? And she'd say, Oh, fine. And her mother would say, Making any friends? And she'd say, Yeah, sure, lots. Sometimes I'd see her hanging around alone in her front yard as if afraid to leave it. And then they moved. That was it. No tragedy, no big final hazing. One day she was there, the next day she wasn't. End of story. Now, why do I regret that? Why, 42 years later, am I still thinking about it? Relative to most of the other kids, I was actually pretty nice to her. I never said an unkind word to her. In fact, sometimes I even mildly defended her, but still it bothers me. So here's something I know to be true, although it's a little corny, and I don't quite know what to do with it. What I regret most in my life are failures of kindness. Those moments when another human being was there in front of me, suffering, and I responded sensibly, reservedly, mildly. Or to look at it from the other end of the telescope, who in your life do you remember most fondly, with the most undeniable feelings of warmth? Those who were kindest to you, I bet. So I'd say as a goal in life, you could do worse than to be kinder. Now, the million-dollar question, what's our problem? Why aren't we kinder? And here's what I think. Each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions that are probably somehow Darwinian. These are, one, we are central to the universe. That is, our story is the main and most interesting story and the only story, really. Two, we're separate from the universe. There is... There's us, and then out there, all that other junk, dogs and swing sets in the state of Nebraska and low-hanging clouds, and you know, other people. And three, we're permanent. Death is real, okay, sure, for you, but not for me. Now, we don't really believe these things. Intellectually, we know better, but we believe them viscerally and live by them, and they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others, even though what we really want in our hearts is to be less selfish, more aware of what's actually happening in the present moment, more open and more loving. So the million-dollar question is, how might we do this? How might we become more loving, more open, more selfless, more present, less delusional? Good question. So let me say this. There are ways... You already know that because in your life there have been high kindness periods and low kindness periods, and you know what inclined you toward the former and away from the latter. Education is good. Immersing ourselves in a work of art, good. Prayer, good. Meditation is good. A frank talk with a dear friend. Establishing ourselves in some kind of spiritual tradition. Recognizing that there have been countless really smart people before us who have asked these same questions and left behind answers for us. Because kindness, it turns out, is hard. It starts out all rainbows and puppy dogs and expands to include, well, everything. One thing in our favor, 
Some of this becoming kinder happens naturally with age. It might be a simple matter of attrition. As we get older, we come to see how useless it is to be selfish, how illogical, really. We come to love other people and are thereby counter-instructed in our own centrality. We get our fannies kicked by real life, and people come to our defense and help us, and we learn we're not separate, and we don't want to be. We see people near and dear to us dropping away, and we gradually are convinced that maybe we too will drop away someday, a long time from now, we hope. Most people, as they age, become less selfish and more loving. I think this is true for the great Syracuse poet, Hayden Carruth said in a poem written near the end of his life that he was mostly love now. So think about it in your life. What is it? If you could stand beside Jesus, what is it in one word that you would ask for from him? What is your goal? What do you see as worthy of your life? What virtue do you want to be remembered by? Love or kindness, generosity? Now take a card. I'm serious. Take a card out of the card rack in front of you that has a little cloud on it. And if there is not one, write it on the Uh, stewardship card there and write that one word privately with no one else seeing and fold it over in half and put it now in the offering plates when they are passed. I'm serious about this. Take the card out and write the word. You can do this. At least you can do this. One word. And what we're going to do with it is place this word in a word cloud which is a computerized way of sticking all the words together, and the word that comes up the most will be the largest word in the cloud. And then we will respond respond with it back to you as the congregation to let you have a sense of what those meaningful visions and virtues are for us. And then after doing this, find a teacher. Jesus, maybe, And start practicing what he teaches us. And then after a few thousand tries, we might start finding that we become more like that person we've been practicing to become. And at that point, we are called to become a teacher. Otherwise, it would be better if a millstone. Let us now bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.